0: In the lighting of the prophecy candle, we know that the flow of God's gift in the prophetic preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus extends not only through the oft-called major and minor prophets of the books of the Old Testament and those notable prophets who blazed upon across the landscape of Israel's experience like Elijah and Elisha, who don't have a book named after them, but also that that flow of the prophetic preparation for the coming of the Lord goes into the pages of the New Testament. We saw that too, uh, last week in noting the powerful influence of John the Baptist, really who we could call the last of the prophets of the Old Testament in the sense of the sequence of events, but there's another one. There's another character in the New Testament that whose experience whose place in this panorama of prophecy comes as somewhat of a surprise, certainly surprised Mary and Joseph when they came to present the baby Jesus in the temple, offering up this wondrous gift of God's only begotten Son, for whom they had been given the high honor and privilege of being The earthly parents, Joseph the foster father, Mary the biological mother, whom God had chosen for this indescribably awesome responsibility. So God sends another prophet, a prophetic voice who only appears once in the scriptures, but whose words convey powerfully The very heart and essence of what we just sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel. In this experience, Simeon, this aged, powerful man of prayer who had humbled himself before the Lord countless times, hundreds and hundreds of times, saying, when, O Lord, how long, O Lord? And in the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, he's described as a man who was righteous and devout. But it's that verb of waiting that is most striking about his entire life. That one word could be a banner over the years of Simeon's preparation of heart and agony of soul and yearning even Surely in his imagination, how will this happen? When will he come? How will I know? So powerful to think about the waiting, a different kind of waiting that Simeon represents for us. And so Luke tells us that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. That is the first of many takeaways we could have in looking at Simeon's life, that that God has some special provision we can trust in, in the power of the Holy Spirit when we need to wait. And as he held the baby in his arms and lifted him up before the Father, I'm sure at the awestruck response of Mary and Joseph to see and hear what was being said about their little eight-day-old infant baby, Jesus, as Mary and Joseph heard Simeon say unto the Father, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for your people Israel. In the four candles of Advent, um, our focus this season will be on the, the power of the scriptures, How God brings these timeless, life-transforming truths to us. And in quiet wonder, Advent draws us, in a sense, to the window ledge of eternity. We encounter the eternal Word, the Logos of God taking up residence among us. The Word made flesh, light beyond all worlds. Almighty God taking upon human form in its tiniest and most vulnerable state. The infinitesimal embryo in the womb of a humble Jewish virgin named Mary is where the eternal God chose to reside. How awesome. And yet for our salvation to be complete, it was necessary for the infant in Mary's womb to be surrounded by the ordinary. One example is this silent season of preparation that Mary walked through from the moment that the angel Gabriel told her of this high and unimaginable honor until those hours of labor and delivery in that cave on the backside of Bethlehem. And that ordinariness that Mary experienced is also a kind of gift to us in that it helps elevate our ordinary waiting. And it really invites us in what historically congregations across the last 20 centuries at various times came to call Advent the the honoring of his arrival, even as we anticipate with joy his future, the second coming of our Savior. We might think of this first Sunday of Advent, as opening a window on on one of life's most perplexing problems. It's the long, stretched-out experience of waiting. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, Psalm 27, 14 tells us. And yet, wait, wait. We, We wonder how that can be. What will it take for you and me to embrace waiting on God? How could we be sure of what He's up to in a world where We may only get brief glimpses of his hand at work. And indeed, as as extraordinary as Simeon's embracing of the baby and the words they heard, that was a bright flash of the extraordinary in a long sequence of the very ordinary for even Mary and Joseph. So why, why waiting for us? Why is waiting such a problem? Do you see why? (laughs) Of course you do. We all know how easy it is to tell someone else to wait. The trouble comes when we're stuck or stranded or stymied in a way that squeezes our emotions dry. Wait is the last word we really want to hear. In our extreme need for answers, for clarity and perspective, Advent is the assurance of an awakening. With news of a virgin bearing within herself the embryo of Almighty God, a new kind of waiting is awakened within us. We get a taste of the kind of waiting Simeon experienced in that long preparation to hold the baby Messiah. Well, this Messiah's mission was very aimed. It was focused on earth. It was focused on intersecting the ordinary. From the moment that a slithering serpent in a magnificent garden sought to assault the mother of all living, God charted the plan that can be summarized in this single word, Advent, his arrival. Through hundreds of specific promises in Scripture, deep roots of assurance grew in the soil of God's chosen people. Isaiah explained it like this, when a fierce and formidable adversary sought to destroy Israel, Isaiah said, for the Lord longs to be gracious to you, therefore he will rise up to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Advent itself is the certainty of the arrival, the arrival of God's Redeemer, from the tiniest tugs of that preborn infant on the umbilical cord of his mother until his dying gasps of atoning sacrifice on a hill called Golgotha, Jesus waited. And how good of God to so elevate the ways we're called to wait by even even matching us up with the waiting of His only begotten Son. Would you pray with me now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to pray for the patience we need day by day seems a tough pill to swallow at times. We admit, Lord, that waiting is often the last task we would choose. And yet, we see once again that Advent invites us to a different kind of waiting. So, Lord, give us hearts like Mary's. A young woman as ordinary as we are, and yet pressed into a wise waiting with the wondrous reality of your eternal being within her. Teach us also, Lord, how to wait as we walk with you. In the mighty name of our good shepherd, amen. Our Explorers and Pathfinders class have so much to absorb in these, these fun weeks. And as I mentioned earlier, a very special time together next Sunday is the uh, kids' breakfast, birthday breakfast. That's a special time just for them and their story and craft. So moms and dads, we need them here right at 1015. Go right on directly to the class area next Sunday only on December 4th. And then, uh, of course, as you've seen in the, um, in the reminders on the slides, that um, we especially want to invite everyone to uh, be a part of the December 18th birthday breakfast for Jesus and share in this time together. That 18th of December will be at 10 a.m. instead of our usual morning time at 10.15. So we welcome you all for that time together. I'd like to invite you to open your Bible today to the uh, first chapter of the New Testament. To open your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. Two weeks ago, we looked at um, the single individual who became, in a way, the representative receiver of the Gospel of Luke. That that uh, connection that we looked at with Theophilus two weeks ago was a kind of a window into the uh, distinctive purpose of the writing of the Gospel of Luke. And of course, in that, we saw a characteristic that we now want to look at with a completely different orientation, a whole different uh, driving purpose of the writer, and yet. Because of the incredible and indescribably awesome sovereign planning and engineering of God, these writers carried the currents, as Second Peter 1, 20-21 tells us, these men were moved upon by the Holy Spirit and carried along as instruments of the inerrant and infallible word of the living God. And in their distinctives, as we see, Matthew's quite different than Luke's, their unity of purpose takes on a rich and textured message for all of us in our time and in our culture that God has given his word to us to secure us, to teach us, to open our eyes to the magnitude of who Jesus is. And... What I'd like to ask you to do now, which is is you open your Bible to the first page of the New Testament, is to think about something that I'm sure has crossed your mind many times at various times in your life when you've ever opened your New Testament, especially if you did so as a young believer, as I can so vividly recall, uh, though it was was in my case now... uh, 55 years ago that I remember this experience the first time, I've watched it through the years and I've thought about it through the years, that when you open the first page of the New Testament, you're a little surprised because you find yourself faced with 17 verses of names, basically. For us in our Western world, we don't immediately relate, it doesn't immediately click for us, why a list, uh, I just decided to count them for fun. There's 46 different names. Some of those 46 are repeated at different times because so-and-so is the son of so-and-so and he's the son of so-and-so and then that name is mentioned more than once. But when you are confronted in 17 verses with over 46 names, you, you initially step back because you think, how, how do I approach this? And maybe some people take the shortcut route and they just zip on past all that and start at verse 18. Well, that's fully understandable, of course. Um, But what I'd like to do today is to share with you the first of two parts of something that I like to call the power of page one. For this reason, that as we look at the distinctive purpose of the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, we can see um, in some wonderfully illuminating ways how the miracle of the virgin birth of the incarnation God becoming man is indelibly woven together with some very, very culturally relevant steps that Matthew needed to take in order to bring the full message of the glory of the risen king To an audience that in Matthew's case was predominantly, but not completely, Jewish. Now, when you look at it this way, you begin to see maybe uh, some simple comparisons that are often noted, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That in a somewhat of a very simplified way, we can say that uh, we think of the Gospel of Matthew as the gospel to the Jewish audience. We think of the Gospel of Luke as the Gospel to the more cosmopolitan, the Hellenistic Greeks, the wider world that was a a mingling of the influence of the Roman Empire with the Greek civilizational cultural dynamics that made that era of the first century such a dynamic time of change. And Luke, being a Gentile himself, is writing to a predominantly Gentile audience, and yet even in Luke's writing, there is... uh, an astonishing amount of depth of understanding of the Jewish mind frame. Now from Matthew's standpoint, it's like the opposite direction, more from the Jewish mind frame and the Jewish orientation, and yet it would be a mistake for people to oversimplify and say that Matthew's only writing to the Jewish audience because there are some incredibly uh, deft signs of how the distinctives of the Jewish culture are then brought to light for all believers. In fact, it's obvious from the the structure of the Gospel of Matthew that part of his purpose, in addition to enabling uh, very skeptical Jewish individuals to accept that this Messiah, who was the child in their eyes of an irregular union, could somehow be the Messiah. Now, chapter 1, the power of page 1, deals with that in a very formidable way for the classic Jewish mind. But again, it's important to keep in mind, it's not uh, it, in any way exclusively that purpose because one fun thing to do with the power of page 1 is to toggle with our finger in page 1 and go to chapter 28, go to the last three verses and notice that in the entire corpus of this, of this great... Uh, M- monumental ma- masterpiece manuscript that, that uh, the defining goal becomes crystal clear in these last verses as well as in the gathering and the um, presenting of material that Matthew gives us in that the final words, the closing words of the Gospel of Matthew are, behold, behold, I'm with you always. Look at that last half of that 20th verse of the 28th chapter. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So here, Matthew, as we hear him write in the beginning, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham in chapter 1, verse 1, then the goal and the parting Understanding of what it means to be a born-again, redeemed follower of Jesus in Matthew 28, 20 is that the one who has been given all authority to commission us into the earth says not only am I commissioning you, not only should you go into all the world and bring this good news of the reign of our king to every generation and every culture, but I will personally be with you. In fact, when we think of it this way, we can see why one of the first of um, over 15 statements in Matthew where he describes these things being done so that it might be fulfilled, that was spoken through the prophets, that back in this first chapter, if you'll go back to page 1 now and look with me at verse 21, you see that as he is dealing with the what to us is the more obscure part, the, the genealogy and what was contained in that uh, record of the uh, royal lineage of the son, the family of David. And yet in verse 21 of Matthew 1, the angel's words carry to Matthew, to to Joseph, the, the foster father of Jesus, this very same theme that the gospel concludes on. That is, in verse 21, she will bear a son... And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name, say it aloud with me today, Emmanuel. Would you say it, Emmanuel Which translated means, say it with me, God with us. Now, I'm sure you can reflect as I can honestly say, I need not only the forgiveness of my great sins, but I need the presence of the forgiver. That I need not only to know that my guilt, as deep as it is, as crimson red as my condemnation is naturally deserved. That my Savior, whose precious blood paid the atoning price that I could be cleansed of my sin and have a new heart and a new life. And that cleansing and forgiveness from Almighty God would come freely without merit and without charge, without money and without price as Isaiah 55 says. And yet I need, oh do I need it, oh do we need it! But even more I need to know he, the forgiver, is with me. He shall save his people from their sins because he is Emmanuel, God, God, with us. So from the power of page one to the great commission of chapter 28, a pervasive fact that comes from the pen of of this one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, whom Jesus summoned from of all places a tax collector's table. Few people in the cultural environment in which this gospel was written, few people were more despised by the Jews than those who were of Jewish origin, but had, uh, had accepted the opportunity to work into the auspices of the Roman government to become the instruments of extracting, often confiscatory taxes, out of the pockets of their countrymen. And the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew shows how, how Levi, whose name is Matthew, becomes this instrument of uh, a... Sudden turnaround, this uh, catalyst of witness that God uses to bring other people into an awareness of the magnitude of the message of the king. Because Levi, or Matthew, as soon as he hears the Lord say, follow me, leaves that tax collector a quite lucrative um, life occupation and follows Jesus and on a dime opens his somewhat i'm sure opulent home of in the in the relative to the experiences of the time and invites people in for a great party to meet the master well from that point on it becomes very clear that that though it isn't spoken of again in terms of Matthew's life in that entire episode it's clear that the abilities the The meticulous detail, the uh, interest in uh, adding things up and making things organized in such a structural way that uh, later, as Matthew, after the resurrection, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, in most likely the region of the northern part of Galilee and up into Syria, very possibly a part of the Antiochian church, that Matthew becomes the master of the organized, we might say, catechisms of the early church. He's the first catechetical writer. He gives us the organized material that we need in order to help not only learn ourselves, but to be able to present and to help others discover in a way that will help them discover all that they need to know about Jesus. And so when I think about the power of opening the book, opening the New Testament to this distinctive genealogy, we want to think a little bit about about his purpose. And I think one way to do this is to think about the fact that, uh, that for the Jewish people, who were the primary targets of Matthew's writing, and those who were already following Jesus growing in Christ, coming to know the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and learning what it means to actually do what Matthew did, which was to follow Jesus, leaving behind whatever may have been perceived as our assets. And, oh, oh, did he leave assets behind. And following Jesus, that Matthew is giving to us a treasury and as we just read and get the cadence of the beginning of this, I think it might be helpful to look at it this way that the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, verse 1 of chapter 1 of Matthew, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Now we get the cadence of that, and we we all know that uh, at that point your eyes were already glazing over, wondering, is he really going to do this? And and yet, what I'd like you to just first note is that there's a division already on the top here of the the purpose for organizing um, what ends up being um, over 1,600 years of the history of, of the chosen people to the very moment in verse 18 to 22 that an angel appears to a man named Joseph who in the bloodline of the Jewish experience is indeed a descendant of those in the line of David and in Joseph's case a descendant through the line of Solomon and that fact again at verse 16 where it's noted that he's the husband of Mary that Matthew is addressing both the skeptic and the learner in a in a shared opportunity to enlighten the mind about how God brought his son to earth. So first of all, we can see that in verse 16, that Matthew gets to the point of Joseph. 1,600 years, in rough terms, after Abraham. And Joseph becomes the heir of a rich and powerful and comprehensive promise that God originally spoke to Abraham do you see that in verse 1 of Matthew 1 that the genealogy begins by dividing up this vast span of history between the era from David son of David and backwards to the era of Abraham son of Abraham now let's look at that a little more closely Clearly, in the text, we see automatically one of the characteristics of the Jewish writing, which is that to say someone is the son of does not mean that they are sequentially the only son, nor does it mean that they were the son biologically just in that immediate family, but they were the descendant of. Now, the bloodline was absolutely crucial. The biological veracity was crucial to all Jewish people. For And we see this reflected in the sheer volume of words that we have from verse 1 through verse 16, that this was a compendium of the summary of their entire line of experience as a nation and that the division between the line of abraham and then those that followed after david is crucial to everything that matthew is going to present for us so in the entire body of the 28 chapters of matthew over 16 times he gives us an insight into the things that were being written that it might be fulfilled which was spoken or in some cases the phrasing is As it was written. And of course the classic uh, example there. That starts that stream. Is that 22nd and 23rd verse. But it's also important to notice. That not only does he use these expressions. That that in a literary way. Literally apply the fulfillment. He is also showing us by that entire genealogy. Those 16 verses. He's showing us. Why what you're about to encounter in the New Testament, why what you're about to encounter at the time of his writing in that gospel was that the king of kings, the king of the Jews, the one who fulfills the requirement to be their Messiah, why all of that is essential to both Jew and Gentile in coming to know the gift of salvation. And I'd like you to think about it in light of what Paul later explained. Now, it's quite interesting as well that Paul is writing in Galatians uh, roughly the same time period that Matthew is writing. The interconnection and understanding about what it meant to be a redeemed follower of Jesus is crystal clear from Matthew 16, where Matthew records Jesus' interaction with Peter, when Peter, he said, who do men say that I am? And some of the disciples said, well, they speculate on different ones. They think maybe you're John the Baptist, or maybe you're Eli- you're the Elijah that was to come, or maybe you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, but Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that declaration is what Matthew records for us in chapter 16, that Jesus establishes the ecclesia, the com- the gathering of the people, the the opportunity for people of all walks of life, as we see in the Great Commission, in all the world, to receive this good news of the Jewish king, of the Jewish Messiah, the one who fulfilled all the prophetic necessities to be the Messiah sent from God in the fullness of time. And yet, this message, in every Respect from chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 28 verse 20 is for this purpose. And it's summarized, I think, best here in Galatians 3.26. Let's read it aloud from the screen. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So I think a way to get a handle on how important Matthew's purpose is, even for us today, is to see the power of page one as an anchor. It's like, it's like an anchor for the vast treasury Of all the good news and this genealogy odd for us as our way of reading but this genealogy if you might think of it in one way of these 16 verses of the genealogy as an anchor for the entire New Testament now for Matthew it's just the anchor of one of his gospel but it becomes the anchor of the entire New Testament in that it anchors all the glorious blessings that we've just read about from Galatians. The the blessings of Abraham that come by the gift of the Holy Spirit to the child of God by faith and that all ethnic groups in the entire globe were envisioned originally by God even in what he spoke to Abraham. And now it is proven beyond any dispute because of the anchor of the genealogy line of the Messiah. Now, we might think of it like this as we look at that first chapter again, kind of as a whole of the power of page one, in that um, there, are really, there are really three primary uh, categories of individual that um, are included in this genealogy. Now, I want to ask you to think about the genealogy as an anchor and then we're gonna next week look at it as the bridge from law to grace and as a window on the will of God in a very personal way. And in that bridge from law to grace, there are four women included in this listing of names in the genealogy who for the standard way of operating in the Jewish culture at that time would not only but have been out of place, but would have been very jarring. And we'll see why these four women are in the mix of this uh, somewhat unusual for us collection of names. But first let's think about the categories of this genealogy. And the first category is the patriarchal. Again, go back to verse one and two of chapter one. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, The son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac. So here we have the recording of the most important patriarchal names in all of Jewish history. For obvious reasons. What do we know about Abraham? Abraham, called by God out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of the remote region of the Babylonians, later the Babylonian Empire. But in those days... Across the Fertile Crescent, that Ur of the Chaldees was where all of the astro- astrological and cultic pagan practices had their, found their zenith in, the ancient, in antiquity prior to the days of Abraham. He grew up in an idol-worshipping culture. And God Almighty, Elohim the Creator, made his glory known to a man in whose heart He found faith. And the Bible tells us in in Genesis chapter 12 that the Lord said to Abram, Arise, get up and go to the place where I will show you. And Abraham obeyed and went. And the 15th chapter, when Abraham is 86 years old, God again brings a distinctive vision to Abraham. He appears to him in a vision and he says, Abram, before his name was changed to Abraham, Abram, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Walk before me, and I will make a nation from you, and kings will come from you and your seed. And the Bible says that Abram believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And that statement about Abraham in Genesis 15, 6 then becomes in the New Testament the single characteristic mark of what it means for a heart that is born in sin to be redeemed and regenerated and to be received into the arms of God as a born-again child. And that is, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham's faith, believing God, who is the author of all righteousness, that Abraham received the gift of righteousness by faith long before there was any law to outline what is right and what is wrong. Here, centuries before the um, Ten Commandments, Abram's heart belonged to God. So later when the, when the law was added and the various uh, requirements of the law and the illumination of the law which is perfect and holy and just and good as Romans 7 tells us that that became a guidepost a kind of a classroom a kind of a curriculum from God that, that spread across the, the chosen people that they might be distinguished by their faith in God and the power of his gift of righteousness. And yet for all the reasons so that as they lost their way, that uh, understanding of Abraham's faith became lost kind of in the mists of time. And then we understand, then we come to see that the patriarchs themselves become the uh, originators, the model of what it would mean in the future to trust God, to put your trust in him. Abraham then stands as the kind of archetype of the patriarchs. And in that archetype, there's also an early hint of the empowering of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer when God comes to Abraham again at 99 and says, now walk before me and be thou perfect and I will make my covenant with you and your seed after you. Now Abraham, at this time, 99 is still childless. And Sarah, it appears for both of them, that they are far past the age of childbearing. And yet God, again revealing, I'm almighty God. I am El Shaddai. I'm the God who's more than enough. I am the source of all potency and power. And he says to Abraham, trust me again. And because Abraham believes God, even though, as Romans 4 later explains, his capacity, humanly speaking, was gone. Knowing his body was now dead in the deadness of Sarah's womb, and yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver, but believed that he who promised was faithful. This is the characteristic Mark, again, woven into the whole experience of the patriarchs, and then illuminated as if, uh, like, like um, wildcatters, looking for oil out in West Texas, and then they strike an oil well, and the flames shoot up. That's what faith in Almighty God is in the life of Abraham when it's revealed in Romans chapter 4 that it was this faith, it was this very faith in the heart of the patriarch that God had embedded in the future gospel. So in, the, in page 1 of our New Testament, we already have a dual purpose for this really unusual body of work, 1 to 16 verses. What is that dual purpose? One, it would answer to the skeptical Jew, to the skeptical rabbi, to the skeptical and maybe scornful rejecters of Jesus, still with great animosity in the time that Matthew was writing. And I can picture in my mind kind of a maybe an old, wizened, uh, Scholar with his with his brow kind of curled up and his and uh, leaning on a staff and saying, "Prove it to me. <laughs> How could this Jesus of Nazareth, whose whose father and mother weren't even married when he was conceived, so irregular for their their entire way of thinking?" And then line by line, Matthew. Using those skills he learned deftly at the tax tax collector's booth, Matthew meticulously outlines in a summation of 1,600 years of Jewish history how that, yes, indeed, yes, indeed, Jesus is legally, through Joseph the foster father, the son of David, centuries past, and the son of Abraham, Further centuries passed, and yes, indeed, Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom was born the Christ, is indeed in that line perfectly. <laughs> so that's one, that's, that's one track of the, of the expounding of, of the glory of the Son of God. So rabbinical readers would be saying, oh, God. And then, in another odd expression of the 17th verse where he summarizes um, vast territories of genealogy in three groups of 14 years. Where he he describes it and summarizes them from the... Generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations summarized. From David to the deportation to Babylon, another very critical historical event in the lives of the Israeli people. An unforgettable event, event where their dynasty ended. Where the throne was taken from them in a manner that appeared permanent. And their 19th king named Jeconiah received a specific curse from the mouth of God that none of his sons, though he had seven, would ever succeed in living or occupying the throne of David. In other words, in Jeremiah chapter 22, the dynasty ends. It's over. And yet, the promise prevailed through the wreckage of history. And God's promise never failed, though their dynasty collapsed. And it was, it was in that dynasty, in that line that came from that cursed king, that Joseph has the legal genealogical track. But that would cause a problem if he was the biological father of Jesus. But no, he's the foster father of Jesus of the babe in the womb of Mary and in that line tracing from the lost dynasty through the genealogical ages Joseph fulfills the legal requirement of being a son of David in the line. Then over in Luke's genealogy where Luke traces Mary also a daughter of David we might say though they didn't use that term in common parlance and yet in Luke's record of Mary's actual family line. It becomes clear that, oh yes, Mary is a daughter of the line of David, but not through Solomon as Joseph, but through David's older son Nathan. So Mary is the biological in a by bi- the biological seed line from children of Abraham, children of David, that vast territory we've talked about. And yet she, in the biological line, The physical mother of the Messiah is the actual giver of life to the Son of God, the King of the Jews, who fulfills all of the prophetic necessities in perfection. And so when we think about it this way, we realize that the patriarchs stand for what God's plan was to make salvation by faith through grace. That not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Secondly, that the Boaz mentioned in the line of these heirs, of these ancestors, shows us the redemptive purpose of God in that wonderful story that we'll touch on next week. And then David is the royal line where the the seed line narrowed from not just all Jews, not just all that were in that line from the heirs of Boaz, the son of Jesse and the son of David, but down through the line of David when God said to David, from your seed, your son, will sit upon the throne and rule so that when we look at it this way, we we see two impossible obstacles that were embedded in the miracle of the virgin birth, and that was... That curse on Jeconiah but clearly the seed line continued and Joseph the father husband of Mary of whom was born the Christ as Matthew outlines that any skeptical Jewish reader could then understand this is a singular unrepeatable extraordinary miracle of Almighty God yes indeed this baby is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. And then, of course, the absolute impossibility of Mary giving birth to a baby when she had never known a man. And we'll conclude with that part of it in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22 and 23. The part we saw that says this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And here again, uh, the skeptical Jew and the new believer, and I forgot to come back to that, the other side of his presentation, the new believer, the growing Christian, the child of God, those filled with the Holy Spirit. What, what, What do I need to understand about my Savior? And in all of those ways, The power of page one brings us the mighty miracle that results in the living God being with us. Read verse 24 and 25 of Matthew 1. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And, would you say it with me, he called his name Jesus. He called his name Jesus. Philip Keller, the author of a book called Rabboni, that in an imaginative and illustrative way describes the events in the life of Jesus, refers to this moment um, where both Mary, having gotten the message from Angel Gabriel and Joseph, now being confronted with, with the fact that though he loved her tenderly and under the Jewish Law, it would be the normal procedure to find that she was pregnant outside of wedlock that he would put her away, and yet he wanted to do it in a tender way. He wanted to care for Mary. He was motivated, obviously, by what was in Mary's best interest. And the, it, the angel intervenes and explains, no, Joseph, no. And, and Philip Keller describes that moment in a, it's a very poignant way, I think, is a way, good way for us to reflect and pray that we might just stand in honor and awe of Jesus. He writes, There now hung over Mary's soul a cloud of pain, which was but the first of many pains she would endure. For when she returned to Nazareth and to her beloved Joseph, she was heavy with child. Cruel, piercing questions raced through Joseph's mind. Joseph was in an agony of indecision. Had his betrothed been unfaithful to him down in the Judean hills? What would people of Nazareth think? Should he put her away from him and break off the betrothal? Wouldn't gossip spread among his neighbors with Mary being so obviously an expectant mother? And then one night, as he tossed and turned on his bed in torment of mind, an angelic messenger came to Joseph. Don't discard Mary. Don't, don't distrust the girl. She's innocent. That one to be born of her was conceived of the spirit of the Most High God. Take her as your own, love her, protect her, celebrate the birth of the little one she carries. And so he did. Despite the wagging tongues, despite the whispered gossip, gossip, it took courage of the highest caliber. It was a measure of the man that he was more responsive to what God said than to what the people of Nazareth said. So for the remaining months that the little virgin girl bore the Christ, Mary and Joseph carefully kept kept the secret of the Savior. When the babe was born, he would emerge from a womb that was sacrosanct. It was a virgin who would present the king of glory to the waiting world. And it is Matthew the tax collector who joyously follows Jesus into the gift of salvation, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and becomes an instrument of God's grace to describe for his Jewish community companions, as well as for the emerging joyous experience of children of God learning about Jesus, that Jesus, the Lord, is our King. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today that just as we can see that... um, Virgin-born Messiah presented to you, O Lord God, the eternal King of Glory, second person of the Trinity, that in the eternal councils of the Trinity we stand in awe at Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so condescending to human need and human hurt, that you would you would deign not only to to bring yourself into the microscopic size of the embryo in the womb of Mary, but oh God, that you would do it in such an exquisitely, historically validated and verifiable way that the most hardened, skeptic, and most antagonistic opposer of the good news could be seen the evidence that yes, indeed, Jesus, our Lord, is our Emmanuel. Amen.